Good morning. So the title of my sermon today, we're not all into, all that into titles, but the title of my sermon today is called Glittering Images. And I'm letting you know from the beginning in the sermon that I completely ripped that title off from a book that I've been reading this summer. Not even similar title, like word for word, this book I've been reading, Glittering Images, it's what I want to say. I don't think it's plagiarism if you admit it and it goes on the internet, but... I did not come up with this, but it's important you know because this book is one of those books that's like gotten into my head and it runs around in there and I can't let it go. It was recommended to me by a friend and a mentor who's kind of one of those people in your life when they say, hey, you should check this book out and read it. It's like, okay, I'm, a, I'm actually going to do that. And, um, and it's messing with me. Uh, the book is a story of um, a number of English Anglican priests in the years leading up to World War II uh, in Great Britain, which I know that description makes all of you want to run out to the bookstore and pick it up as quickly as possible. But the deal that's going on with these priests is that they're like any of us, right? They can hide, pastors can do this behind God language to kind of cover stuff up, but they're like any of the rest of us. They had a plan of where they wanted their life to go and what they wanted their life to look like, and they're moving in that direction. And for them, they wanted to work their way up the leadership of the Anglican church, and so to be the kind of pastor, the kind of leader that you were supposed to be, they wanted to create what the author Susan Howitch calls glittering images of themselves. Isn't that a great term? Glittering images of themselves. The kind of people that when they stand up to preach a sermon or when they're introduced as the president of a Christian college or a seminary or something else, people were looking at going, that's who I want as my pastor. That person's got everything figured out. They're going to be able to kind of just unlock the mysteries of life. They're going to be able to do. And so they had to kind of find ways to be that pastor, to be that priest. And so what that means is they had to like look a certain way. They had to work out. They had to be funny. They had to be yet serious. They had to be able to run campaigns and publish books and publish articles in the right place, but speak in the right conferences. And then all the stuff about them that was like sinful or that didn't, play into the past you want to be, you just bury that deep down inside and don't ever talk about it again, right? Which is healthy. (laughs) Just bury the kind of like lust or self-centeredness or greed or all the stuff that's there that doesn't play into that glittering image. And if you just bury it for long enough and don't pay attention to it, it goes away. Except for it doesn't go away. It gets bigger and stronger, and eventually the story is about how these other parts, this sin, these kind of, these things that weren't the glittering image, how over and over again in the lives of these priests, it eventually takes over and destroys them. Over and over and over again. It's lovely at a story like that when people go, you need to read this. You should pay attention to this book. And they know you well, too. That's the heart. It's like, yeah, it's not a stranger. It's like, yeah, I know you. You should read this book. So I'm wrestling with that. Uh, of what that means, and, uh, and, and there's this moment where the main character who's just had his life come apart because the glittering image has been shattered, Dr. Charles Ashworth, he's talking to an older priest, kind of a confessor named Father Darrow, and he says to Father Darrow, isn't this a tragedy that this has happened? I've worked all this time, and I've kind of, you know, all this stuff, and it's all come apart, and the books that I've read, no one's gonna, written, no one's going to read, and the impact I was going to have, I'm not going to have, and all this kind of stuff. Isn't it a tragedy? And Father Darrow looks at Father Ashworth and says, you still don't get the tragedy, do you? The tragedy is that for so many years you have not been able to be completely honest with anyone. How lonely you must be. That is like an anthem for our times. 
In the 31 years since Susan Howitt wrote that book, sociologists tell us over and over and over again that if we have become anything as a society, we have become better at creating the glittering image of ourselves on social media, in friendships, in our elevator speeches, and that we are able to create an image of ourselves that we want others to see. And sociologists tell us that the fact is that that is an epidemic and that we are having things happen. We are more urbanized than any point in human history and we are lonelier than people have ever been before in human history, even though we're surrounded by more faces. We are being entertained to death because we can talk to people about concerts and about what sporting event we're going to and how the Longhorns are going to do this year, how the Aggies are going to do this year, how Georgia Tech's going to do this year, which is not going to be that good again. But I'm still going to call for them because that's how it works. We're surrounded by more people about talking about what we're going to watch on Netflix and what comes next, and all of that might be fine, but nobody actually knows us. We have a thousand relationships that go a quarter inch deep, and it is an epidemic and the effects are all over us. We all have a glittering image, and it's that that I would like you to pay attention to in your own life, in your own heart today, as we continue in this encounter series. We're gonna be looking at this in Mark chapter five, starting in verse 21. This is what scripture says. It says, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him, and he was by the sea. Then one of, his other, one of the leaders of the synagogue named Jairus came, and when he saw him, fell at his feet and begged him repeatedly, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. So he went with him. And a large crowd followed him and pressed in on him. Now, okay, we're going to stop there. We were supposed to stop at 24. So we're going to stop there. The large crowd came and pressed in on him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would be with us this day and help us to encounter you as we continue on this journey of faith. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So we said last week as this started that at the core of our faith, what is unique about Christianity is that we are not built on a set of religious facts or dogma or doctrine. We're not built on primarily religious emotion or feeling that at the very core of our faith, that our faith is built upon a person. It's based around a relationship. It is based around an encounter with Jesus. And we said that where we see in this gospel passage and in other passages is that where we encounter Jesus, we can do so and it can form and shape us as people of joy and abundance when we participate in certain behaviors. When we have certain patterns or behaviors or disciplines in our life, we're going to have a good chance of encountering the presence of God. We said last week that in this passage and others, you see that the first place that we encounter Jesus is what we call in solitude. That in moments of of quiet, that God is big enough to create the universe and that God is intimate enough at the same time to know and care about every detail of what's taking place in our lives. And that is a miracle. The fact is that God cares deeply and loves you deeply. And so where we experience God is in this intimate, individual relationship that we have with God. And we said last week is that where we encounter God in that individual place is in our need. That God encounters people here in this passage in Mark 5 and others, not in their place of triumph or strength. This is how impressive I am. This is my glittering image. I'm going to encounter God there. God encounters us in our places of need. So we invited you last week to take those places of need and to just hold them out to God. What are the doubts you have? What are the questions you have? What are the struggles you have? What are the things that when you look at our world or you look at your children or you look at your grandchildren, when you look at what's taking place that causes you distress and to hold those places in front of God, honestly, we said last week, and just see what Jesus will do with them. 
I've been grateful for those of you who have even shared with me this week where you've encountered some of those places and how God has already been showing up in your life. And for all of us, we keep doing that. Holding those places out in front of God to encounter them. But the danger is we'll stop there. The danger is we'll start and stop with solitude and go, well, I've got my doubts and I've got, and if I can face them, I'm going to hold them out before God. And then that's going to be where God meets me. And God will, but that's not where we're going to fully encounter God. Because the default of American culture is individuality. We love our, I've got my spirituality, I've got my truth, I've got my Jesus, and Jesus encounters me, and I've got my songs I like, and I've got my way of doing this, and everything else is about me and how my God encounters me, and it's all a part of my existence. The default of scripture in both the Old Testament and New Testament is not individualism, it's community. That we encounter God in community. Jesus says, if you want to know where I am, it's where two or three are gathered together in my name. So this week, we're going into the second behavior, which is number one in solitude and intimacy, meeting God in our places of need and encountering him there. But secondly, how do you do that with others? And it's not an extrovert, introvert thing. We're all supposed to do this, have others that we walk with. We see it in this passage. We see it right here. Jairus has his glittering image destroyed from the moment we meet him. Because it says that here is Jairus who meets Jesus and he's a leader of the synagogue. Well, that means certain things. He was a moral leader. He was probably wealthier than most anyone else in the village. He was respected by most everybody else. That's how you became a leader in the synagogue. So this is somebody who had everything going into creating a glittering image himself. He was recognized as a leader of faith probably a business, and people wanted to be with him, like him. Jairus was the kind of person that children would have their parents and grandparents going, if you work really hard someday, you might be able to be like him. And yet when we encounter Jesus, we get this idea, but we hear from the beginning that when Jairus comes out of this crowd, as Jesus gets out of the boat, he's not the leader of the synagogue creating a brand or doing his thing. He is a desperate dad whose daughter is dying. And he says to Jesus, will you please come and get me, come with me and encounter her and heal her. And what we see from the very beginning there is that Jairus doesn't just do this in this like intimate one-on-one with Jesus, but the whole crowd is around him and all of them that know what's going on. You see, when Dr. Ashworth in Glittering Images has his moment of confession when his glittering image starts to disintegrate and he is told how lonely he must be. That's not a moment of shame, and then he goes back to living the way he is. It's like someone who's dying of thirst going through a desert, and then all of a sudden hearing there's a different way of being, and you just drink deeply from this water, and he becomes kind of an evangelist in the Anglican church to the end of the book of going, we need to be honest about all the parts of ourselves if we're going to meet God and have God transform us. Jairus has his glittering image destroyed in the eyes of all the people. All the people know his pain and that he is powerless to do anything about it, and he doesn't care. He just wants Jesus to come. And it says the crowd then starts to press in on on Jesus. Now, we said last week that can sound sort of intimidating, like, you know, if you're in a crowd and all of a sudden it's pressing in on you. But what we see here is that the crowd doesn't have, like, evil intent, but they see Jairus' pain, and they're going, we need to get Jesus in front of this family. We need to get Jesus in front of this child. They start saying to Jesus, like, come on, we got to go, we got to go. There's this little girl that's dying. And so Jairus, my bet is, never goes back to the glittering image if he had it before. Because for him, all of a sudden, people are walking with him in his pain, and they are getting Jesus and his daughter together. Who does that with you? 
Who are the people that you walk with in community? Not the people that you're talking about concerts with. And, and again, you might do all that. But who are the people that walk with you and your family and your marriage and your pain and say, we will do whatever we can to connect you with Jesus in this place of need? All of us are built for that because the scriptures say from the very beginning, it is not good for you to be alone. And by the way, you can be alone in a marriage just as easily as when you're single. You can be isolated in a marriage, the two of you, just as much as when you're single. And it's not good for us to be alone. Who are you walking with? Not in what show you're watching on Netflix next. Who is walking with you in your place of hurt and need towards Jesus? And friends, there's a lot that our church tries to do, and there's a lot going on, and there's a lot we get right, and there's a lot we get wrong. But if we are going to try to do anything well, it is this. We will try to bend over backwards for you to find the pocket of people that you can be doing this kind of life and community with, because we believe it is that essential. But it also is a courageous thing to choose to do it over and over and over again. When you meet with a small group, every time you get to choose if you're gonna tell the truth or not. When people say, how are you doing? You have a choice whether you're gonna tell the truth in that or not. And if you haven't met for two weeks and you just kind of go, yeah, it's busy at work, I'm kind of stressed. That is like not an answer. If we were all honest about that, we wouldn't need any book curriculum ever in a small group. If we were just honest about what was really going on, that would like take up more time than any of us have. Who's that for you? One of my favorite stories is of a mentor and friend of mine who was a young pastor, and he, this was many decades ago, and he was invited to a conference, and it was a conference that played up this glittering image because he was invited, and all the people attending the conference were invited by a foundation, a national foundation that said they were inviting just a few, wasn't open to everybody, just a few, Christian leaders together from around the country to try to get them to start working together for the common good in our country. And so they were bringing parachurches and pastors and Christian authors and uh, college presidents and seminary presidents, a select few by invitation only to Chicago to talk about the future leadership of the church. And he was so stunned that he got invited. And he said that it was like the greatest thing, right? Because no matter what your industry is, you can picture this. You get invited to this and then you're having to go to like with your admin assistant and your staff and they're like, so are you available next week? Like we're gonna have these meetings. Like actually I'm not available next week because I've been invited. An invitation only conference by the Lilly Foundation to Chicago to talk about, you know, like the future of the world and what we can be doing and that kind of stuff. And did I mention it was by invitation only and it's being paid for and everything else. And so everybody knew that he was going and the glittering image was just, you know, that people said to him, it's like, we're so glad you're our pastor. And he said, you should be. You should be so thrilled that I am your pastor, right? And so he goes to Chicago and he goes to downtown and he gets a ride with someone like there at the bottom of the, you know, the escalator when he's got his bags with his name. We have a ride for you to go to the hotel. And it's all being paid for. You go into this fancy hotel in downtown Chicago. You walk in and they say, we don't even need your credit card because it's all being, he said, I know it's all being paid for by the Lilly Foundation because I've been invited, one of a select few, to be a part of this conversation. Everything is being paid for, and so I'll just order room service whenever I want it, because that's how Jesus would have it done, uh, because only the few of us can have these kind of privileges. They said, okay, we'll go upstairs and get changed, and we, everyone, everyone down here, because our opening session is at this very fancy restaurant, and we've got chartered buses that are going to meet us outside. We're going to take you to this charter, to this beautiful restaurant. You're going to eat there, and that's where our program will begin. He goes up to his room and he gets changed and he's like, you know, looking the right way, but he doesn't look like he's trying too hard to look the right way because, you know, but, you know, you want to look the part. He comes down to the lobby. He sees and recognizes a Christian author and a pastor and all these people. Says that they say, all right, everybody onto the buses. They go onto the buses. He sits down by the window and he has an open seat next to him and all these kind of Christian leaders are getting on, all of whom have been invited. And they sit down and this 
this pastor, this well-known pastor and author, sits next to him. And he said, I was sitting there going, look at me. I'm sitting next to him. I've read his books, and like, this is so awesome, and we're sitting here. And they said it's going to be a five-minute drive to this restaurant. He said that the guy next to him goes, oh, I, was, I saw your bio, and I wanted to meet you because we haven't met. And he said, of course you'd want to meet me because I was invited to this conference. Uh, it's being paid for and everything else. And he said that it was a five-minute drive. And he said, five minutes is the greatest, right? Because you each have like two minutes or so to tell how awesome you are and your ministry is, and no one can ask you any questions about it, and then you get off the bus, right? It's awesome for the glittering image. Well, we're doing this. Well, we're doing this. Well, this is how we're growing. Well, this is what's taking place here. Aren't we just all the most important people in the history of creation? He said that all of a sudden, as they were finishing up their small talk, the driver comes on the radio and says, guys, I've made a mistake. I took the wrong turn, and I'm trying to turn around, but there's road construction all over the place, and we're in Chicago rush hour traffic, and it's probably going to take us like 45 minutes to get to the restaurant, and my friend said I'm all of a sudden in like a cold sweat going, I used my elevator speech. Like, I kind of like, everything I had, I just fired at this, and I don't know what to do, and he said that as the older pastor and author who was sitting next to him got quiet for a second, he turned and looked at my friend. He said, you know, I'm hoping you could help me with something. And my friend said, oh, I can. I've been invited to this conference, and I'm ready. Like, what do you need? And he said, but here's my, he goes, I'm struggling with something. I'm thinking about writing about this. He said, here's what I'm struggling with. I find in churches that every single person that is there has at least one of two primary doubts in their hearts that pop up from time to time that they know they're not supposed to talk about in church, and so they don't name it, but it's always in there. He said, the first thing that I find that people over and over again doubt is maybe this, is God really real? Like, really? Like, I know we talk about it and we pray and we go through the things and we teach our children morality and everything else and it helps us in times, but like, in, is this really, seriously, honestly real? And he said, and if that's not the struggle they have, then the second thing is, if God is really real, is he really good? Because how does a good God allow all the things we see taking place in the world? My friend said he's going, okay, yeah, these are two major doubts, and this is what John Calvin said about it, and these are what, like, the Bible verses that I'm going to use, and I'm kind of ready with my answers and how this works. And he said that the pastor then looked at him and goes, so which one of those two do you struggle with? <laughs> and my friend said that he was so stunned by that question, he actually made the mistake of telling the truth. He said, well, I guess I don't struggle with if God's real, but when I see things have happened in my life or are taking place in the world, I do wonder how does a good God allow these things to happen? And he said, as soon as he said it, shame came on him. And he said that all of a sudden the pastor looked at him and goes, me too. That's what I struggle with too. And he said, we then had this amazing 45 minute conversation of like, well, I struggle with this. And then this happened to me. And where was God in that? Well, if you thought that was bad, this happened to me. And where's God? Well, then I went on this mission trip and how does God allow? They're going back and forth on this thing. And he said, at the end of the bus ride, they exchanged email addresses. And for months after the conference, they were emailing each other articles on the subject or talks on YouTube that they had seen on the subject. He said, if people had seen it, they would have looked and gone, oh my gosh, look at who you're writing to this important Christian leader. He said, but if they had read the content of it, they would have seen that it was all about how can a good God ever allow this to happen? And he said, as we month after month sat in that question together, he said, you know what happened? God actually started providing answers. I actually, because that glittering image came down and we said, this is what's real, we started understanding a little bit better where God is. Not perfect answers, but we actually encountered Jesus as we asked those questions in community. 
What is that place for you? On each of your chairs, I believe, there was uh, opportunities there, there. There are handouts there, there of where we do this, through small groups, through men's Bible studies or women's Bible studies. We are going to try to present a whole host of things for you to consider, but you have to choose, is that what you want, or do you prefer the glittering image? Those are the two options in our life. And you have to choose it again and again and again and again and again. When I look back at my own journey over recent years, the place where I can tell you that I truly have experienced the actual presence, the encounter with Jesus, more than anything else, took place with about 40 teenagers from this church. And I'm not in youth ministry for a reason. So when I think forwardly about where am I going to encounter Jesus, I usually do not run to, it's going to be where 40 teenagers are, right? (laughs) I'm going to need Jesus in that setting, but I don't know I'm going to find Jesus in that setting. (laughs) But this was with the Journey Youth Choir, and I'm not going to look at some of you who were there. The Journey Youth Choir are middle school and high school students who lead worship in our services. They start their rehearsals tonight. If any of you have ever um, had middle schoolers or high schoolers that don't know about that and love to sing, contact the church office. But this year, both my daughters will get to do it. And it's a really cool thing that happens here. And every other year, the Journey Youth Choir takes a uh, spring break tour. And they announced a while ago they were going to Atlanta. And Stacy Curtis, their director, asked me, she said, hey, could you help? Because I'm from Atlanta, and it's where we lived before we moved here. And they were doing concerts in Louisiana and I believe Alabama. And then they were ending in Georgia and Atlanta, having this concert there. And then they'd come back to Austin over spring break. And my daughter was going to be on the tour. And so Stacy just said, could you help us get word out about this concert so that people will come? So we contacted friends. We contacted people that we knew there, my mom and my dad, who both lived there. They contacted folks and said, you know, we hope that you'll come. And it was taking place this past March. Uh, my youngest daughter, Hannah, and Beth, my wife and I, were flying to Atlanta for, to meet them there. We're like, well, it's spring break, and this will be cool. We'll go there, and it's great to get out of Austin for just a few days, and we'll then meet the choir and kind of be there for the concert. And just before, about a, uh, about a month before, maybe less than that, maybe three weeks before the concert, um, my dad went under hospice care. And my father uh, had, been, ha- had been diagnosed with this terminal disease a year, or well, a year or so before, but he began starting in the middle of February, probably three, four weeks before spring break, a very rapid decline with this disease that he had. And I wound up flying back to Atlanta early before Beth and, and Hannah did, and long before the choir ever left, to just get some extra time with my dad. And while I was there, I received a phone call from Beth, my wife. And she said that she had just gotten off the phone with Stacy Curtis, the director of Journey. asking if my dad was going to be able to come to the concert. And my dad couldn't really get out of bed. And so the answer was no. And Beth said, well, Stacy wondered if the Journey kids could change their schedule. It's not fair that you guys are sitting in the front row over there. (laughs) Um, Could change their schedule to come to your dad's house and sing to him. And I had two responses to that. The first is, um, I cried. And I don't cry very much. If you're here for the first time, like, he's really emotional there. This is not how I am, right? And I don't mean this like a masculine thing or like, it's not that. I just don't. But when I cry, it's ugly crying, right? And so, uh, so I'm trying to control it right now. So that meant that there was like 60, I was so stunned that anyone would think of that. I had no idea that anyone would think of that, that I just 
I just, I just cried for like 60 seconds on the phone. And the second thing that I did is I said, I don't know if I want that. And I went and I said, well, I don't you know, and I had a lot of reasons. My oldest daughter's gonna be there. She hasn't seen her grandfather since he went into hospice. He's lost 80 pounds since then. He's in a wheelchair, he's on a breathing machine. My stepmother, his wife, has a terminal disease and she's gonna be there as well. Is it fair to Miriam to come in with her friends to, in that setting and see her grandfather and everything else? And, and I asked Miriam and she goes, no, no, I'm, I'm okay with that. And I was like, okay. And then I went to my father and I said to him, dad, this is this offer that's come and you know, it's probably overwhelming and to have everybody in your house and everything else. And so it's a nice gesture and it's okay if you don't want to do this. And he said, I don't want to do it if it's going to embarrass Miriam, his granddaughter, my daughter. And I said, unfortunately, I've talked to Miriam and she's okay with it, but are you okay with it? And it's genuinely okay if not. And he said, I'm great with it. Then I had to sit with the fact that what lay beneath all of that was I didn't know if I wanted it. Because I'm the senior pastor and head of staff of this church. And there... There has not been a more vulnerable place in my life than that home with my dad and stepmother, both of whom are dying. And did I want to let 40 teenagers come walking into that and see me? Because there was a high probability of ugly crying there. <laughs> Do I choose the glittering image or not? And thankfully, I knew that there was no faithful or biblical way to say no. <laughs> and so on our spring break tour, the Journey Choir showed up outside my dad's house on a bus and they came walking in, and they sang in his living room. And I, and every parent will know what I mean by this. I was ready for row, row, row your boat, right? And every parent, and you, as a parent, you know what I'm saying, where the concert happens, and they're on the violin, and then you're like, well done, that was great, and it's touching and beautiful. And these kids started singing, and it like filled the house, this anthem. And before the first song was done, I was crying, and my wife was crying, and my dad was crying, and my stepmother was crying. And if someone had said to me like they did to Moses, you need to take your shoes off because you are on holy ground, I would have done it. But the kids don't know who are there. Is that at the end of the concert, they invited us to say the Apostles' Creed, one of the ancient creeds of the church, and their concert was built around the Apostles' Creed. My father has never said the Apostles' Creed. I wasn't raised in the church. I wasn't raised in this faith. And my dad, for the few times he went to church, would stand up when people said the Apostles' Creed and stay silent because he did not believe it. Because of the hypocrisy of the church and the racism of the church and everything else that the church had done wrong. And this week, friends, we saw in the headlines again where the church has destroyed lives. But there's something that happens when you're dying that you can't hide behind that anymore, as real as those accusations are. And that in the weeks leading up to the concert, my dad and I had some of the most amazing conversations because I was able to look at him and go, I know, I know that's what it's been like, but you are dying. What do you believe? Because you are hitting the end of the line where you can hide behind, this is what I don't like. What do you think? 
And we had amazing conversations about forgiveness and about the need for grace and about God's love that transcends bad decisions and harm that you inflict on other people. And my dad had spiritual awakenings, but I will tell you guys now, when you asked him to do it, I was going, I have no idea how this is going to go. And if you're sitting there going, yeah, but he's a grandfather and he would have done it. I have seen him in those settings. He would have lectured you on why he wasn't going to say it. And without looking at me and without looking at Beth and after these conversations, and I'm looking out of the corner of my eye, my dad, for the first and only time in his life, said every word of the Apostles' Creed. And nine days before he died, when he was with you all, he, for the first and only time, publicly declared what he believed. Imagine if I had said no because I was worried about how you all would see me. This week, today, you get to make that choice as well. To hide behind the glittering image which you have and have justified for whatever reasons you want or whether you drink from the living waters of community and honesty. And we will bend over backwards to try to help you find that place. Besides the handout, and we're closing with this, we have a gift for all of you today that we hope will help in this journey. A gift has been made for us by an artist. And these are wooden cubes that she has made that will be baskets of that you can get on the way out. We only have enough for one per household, but we hope that each and every one of you will take it. Even if you're just a, a visitor today, we want you to take this. On each side of this cube are questions of the daily examine, an ancient spiritual practice that we have invited you to do in solitude. We've invited you to use this as part of your personal spiritual discipline of how you pray and where do you see God. On each side are questions like this. For what moment today am I most grateful? For what moment today am I least grateful? When was I happiest today? When was I saddest? These are not fluffy questions. But rather than using them just on your own, which you can do, what we're going to invite you to do is take these cubes and use them as conversation starters in community. Tonight around the dinner table, don't just have a goal of not having people on their cell phones. Talk about some of these questions. Open up. Be real. Make a choice. Use it as a small group. Use it over coffee with a friend. Use these questions. And as we close, there are two reactions to this when you're leaving here today. Some of you will look at these cubes and go, I don't need that. You're the ones that need it the most. <laughs> and I need you to hear that. You need it more than you know. And you might say, well, this feels artificial and everything else and contrived. I know, but here's how I know you need it the most. Because the people who have moved beyond the glittering image in their life and have drunk of the waters of honest community are the last ones to say, I don't need more of that. They're the ones who are going, help me go deeper. Help me have more of that. Help me to find ways to be more open and more honest and to choose this all the time because if they are the ones who never go, yeah, I don't need any more of that. This is what you're made for. To encounter God and to carry one another to Jesus together. What a glorious walk we get to have. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray. And why don't we just do this? We're just going to close in prayer today. Lord, 
we ask that you would meet us in our places of need, that we would encounter you. Help us to have the courage and faith to believe that we can be honest, starting with our friends or our spouses or our children or our parents. Help us to take steps of moving towards you in our places of hurt, not just by ourselves, but with others, believing that as we see with the crowd, others will love and value us enough to get us into contact with Jesus, who heals and transforms and takes ordinary hurting things and turns them into holy encounters. We pray that you would lead and guide us as we move forward this day and always. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.